Since the beginning of time, God has been pursuing mankind. His pursuit is steadfast and unwavering. His love is resolute and unmatched. From the moment of our first breath, we have all been searching for hope. In every human heart, there is a longing for true purpose and meaning. There is a sense that we were meant for more. Our city is filled with people searching for truth, searching for answers. These answers can't be found in quick fixes, self-help books, or our limited ability to understand the meaning of life. Eternity is within us. The kingdom of God isn't a place, it's a people who are pursued by their creator and are found in the midst of their searching. You see, where the pursuit of God and the searching of mankind collide, there is Jesus. The bridge to the one true God, Jesus. The beginning and the end, Jesus. The perfect example of perfect love, Jesus. The one who loves us in spite of our failures, takes our worst and gives us his best, Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life, the one who broke the chains of our sin, the one who has the power to heal and restore, the one who defeated death and rose victorious on the third day, Jesus. No other name is higher, no other name is greater, no other name than the one we celebrate today, Jesus. Morning, church family. So good to be with you here in person and also joining us online. Uh, just thank you for being in the house of the Lord. No other name but Jesus. Let that be our prayer today and always. Jesus, only Jesus. Uh, before I just get into the sermon, um, as you know, we, for more than a decade and a half, Lake City has had a long partnership with uh, SIM. Uh, just I want to give a shout out to Steve Bennettson. Uh, Steve, you want to give us a wave? Steve and his wife, Katie, and his kids. Uh, Steve is the uh, deputy director of SIM's work in Ethiopia, and he's just visiting and just wanted to say thank you. And uh, again, just we are such deep appreciation for what SIM is doing in, in Africa, and I hope the Lord uh, just blesses your, continue to bless your ministry. So thank you for joining us today. Jane was only 26 years old in 2017 when she received the diagnosis that everyone fears receiving, cancer. Stage three metastatic cancer to be exact. But Jane faced that diagnosis with strength and fearlessness. And in 2018, she was declared cancer-free. Being cancer-free lasted for only a few months, however, before a second battle began. She was told she likely only had three to six months to live. But again, again, Jane was strong and fearless. And in July of 2020, she was told her cancer was in remission. The two-year battle to get to that point did not come without costs. Cost to her physical body, but also the cost of her marriage as her husband left her, deciding he did not want to be part of this journey. Then comes 2021. And earlier this year, Jane was informed that her cancer had returned yet again. Cancer was now in her liver, spine, and lungs. Only 30, her chance of survival is now 2%. And yet, yet we'll come back to Jane's story later. This weekend, we continue our three-week series on what we have in Jesus 
As I noted last week, I wanted to spend my first few weeks preaching messages focused on Jesus. Because the only truth that matters is Jesus. The only solution to the darkness of this world is Jesus. And as a church, we need to be focused on Jesus Christ. And to me, there is no better chapter to preach on Jesus than the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John and the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Last week, we studied the first 16 verses of John 11, and we focused on what faith in Jesus truly means. Next week, we're going to focus on the true life that we have in Jesus. Today, I want to focus on the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in him. We're going to look at the response of three people to the death of Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and Jesus. And in Jesus's response, we will see the hope that we have only in him. So some review of what we studied last week is needed before we get into today's passage. And for a more complete picture, you can access last week's sermon on our, through our app or on our website at lc3.com. But here's a quick summary of the context at this point. So where we are in the Gospel of John is we're nearing the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus and the, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders had been growing steadily for three years. And in John chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples, they left Jerusalem to escape a stoning. And they ended up in a small town called Anon, which was on the banks of the Jordan River. This map highlights two locations. Anon, where Jesus and his disciples were at the time, and another town called Bethany, the hometown of a man named Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary. So Bethany was located about 40 miles south of Anon. And in those days, 40 miles was about a day and a half, two-day journey by foot. So that's where we are at the start of chapter 11. Jesus and his disciples, they're a two-day journey from Lazarus and his sisters. Beginning of chapter 11 tells us this man Lazarus, he's sick. He's so sick that his sisters, Martha and Mary, they reach out, they send a messenger to Jesus. And then we learned last week that because Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, because he loved them, when he got the message, he stayed two more days where he was in Anon. And it brings us to our first important piece of context for this chapter. That Jesus loved Lazarus, loved Martha, loved Mary. The entirety of this chapter happens in the context of Jesus' love for his friends. But all of the actions taken by Jesus in this chapter, all of his words, his response, it comes out of his deep love for his people. That takes us to our passage today, verses 17 through 27 in the Gospel of John. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother, he will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples, they arrived in Bethany. And by the time they arrived, it was seemingly too late. Lazarus had already died. Verse 17 tells us he'd been in the tomb already for four days. And this detail is actually an important one that helps us better understand Martha's and Mary's mindset. Earlier I noted that back then it would have taken a day and a half, two-day journey to get from Bethany and, uh, to Anon and cover the 40-mile distance. So let's do this math together. Let's imagine Martha and Mary send a messenger on Monday morning. Now, the text doesn't indicate any days, but I'm just using the calendar to help us visualize the timeline a little bit better. So they send out the messenger on Monday. That means the messenger arrives sometime midday, end of day, Tuesday. Jesus gets that message, and he stays two more days. So Wednesday and Thursday, he waits. That means he and the disciples leave on Friday. And if they leave on Friday, that means they arrive sometime on Saturday. By the time that they arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now, back then, the custom at the time was to bury or entomb someone within 24 hours of their death. So if you've been in the tomb four days, let's work backwards from Saturday. Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday. Those are the four days in the tomb. That means Lazarus died sometime on Tuesday, about the same time that Jesus received the messenger's note from Martha and Mary. And that's the second piece of context for this chapter, that Jesus' delay had nothing to do with the death of Lazarus. Jesus and the disciples could have left the day they got the message, and by the time they arrived, they still would have been too late. Lazarus would still be dead. I think the majority of people, when they read this passage, they fixate on that two-day delay. They assume that had Jesus not delayed, had he not waited, he would have arrived in time to heal Lazarus. The reality is that two-day delay had absolutely nothing to do with Lazarus' death. But we want to blame Jesus in this moment. But understanding this timeline helps us better understand the mindset of Martha and Mary here. Right? Think about it from Martha and Mary's perspective. Their brother got sick. And by the time they decide to send out a messenger, it's too late. The day after they sent out that messenger, Lazarus draws his last breath. And they realize it's too late. Their hope of Jesus healing Lazarus had been completely dashed. I can't help but imagine that part of what they were feeling then was guilt over not sending out a messenger sooner. I mean, they couldn't have known that Lazarus' illness would worsen in this way. But how often amidst a crisis do we blame ourselves for something that isn't really ours to own? I remember the morning that I got the call from my sister that my father had passed. And I rushed over to my parents' house, and it was clear that he had passed sometime during the night. Now, I had taken him to his dialysis appointment the day before, 
And so I called up the dialysis center and I asked them to walk me through that last appointment, trying to figure out if they or I had missed some important detail, whether they or I had somehow messed up. I remember that night processing his death and feeling not just sorrow, but um, feeling misplaced guilt. Have any of you ever felt similar feelings during a crisis with a loved one? You blame yourself. You blame other peoples. You blame the doctors. And often you blame God. I can't say for sure what the sisters might have felt when Lazarus died, but I do know that they knew that they'd been too late. Lazarus died, and Martha and Mary, last piece of context, they observed Shiva. They observed the Jewish custom of Shiva. Shiva is the Jewish term for the period of mourning following the death of immediate family member, usually a parent, a sibling, a spouse, or a child. And Shiva comes from the Hebrew word for seven. It refers to the length of time for which people immediately mourned, seven days. Shiva has its roots as far back as the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 50, Jacob passed away, and Joseph and his brothers and their families, they mourned. The Bible said this, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. In Job chapter 2, after God allowed Satan to take away all of Job's family, Job's friends came to mourn with him, and the Bible says, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So that was the tradition, seven days. And during a time of Shiva, those who had experienced the loss, they stayed in their homes for seven days, and all of their friends and their relatives and those mourning with them came to their house to sit alongside them and grieve. That's what's going on with Martha and Mary here. Verse 19 tells us, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. They came to observe Shiva with them. The author of this gospel, John, he used that term Jews to refer to various groups of people throughout the gospel. But in the context of this verse and what's going on, it's clear that he's referring to people that were close to Martha and Mary, right? Their loved ones, their, their Jewish friends and relatives from Jerusalem came to console them concerning their brother. Someone comes into their house, informs Martha that Jesus is on his way, and Martha straight away went out to meet him. But Mary stayed back. Quick aside here, a lot of people have speculated as to why Martha goes out to meet Jesus and Mary stays behind. Many people assume it had to do with their personalities. For those who have read the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10, in that story, Jesus, he's hanging out with the siblings from Bethany, and Martha, she's busy around the house trying to be hospitable. And Mary, she's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. That didn't sit right with Martha, so she went and complained to Jesus about this uneven work split. And Jesus let Martha know that sitting at his feet was the far more valuable course of action. And I think from this story, people have unfairly associated Martha with being someone who liked to be busy, Mary with having this quieter, thoughtful personality. And that's why Martha rushes out to meet Jesus and Mary stays back. I actually think that's an unfair characterization of them. There's actually two reasons for why Martha might have rushed to meet Jesus while Mary stayed. And the first is, if you actually take a look at the text, 
It only indicates that Martha heard that Jesus was on his way. It doesn't say that Mary heard at all. Look at verse 20 again. It says this. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Later, when, when Martha finishes speaking to Jesus, she goes back and she says this. The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Right? Mary's reaction when she actually heard that Jesus was coming was to actually make a beeline for Jesus, just like Martha. So I don't think it's Martha's personality that drove her to rush out to meet Jesus first. And a second reason to explain why Mary stayed behind had to do with the customs at the time. Because during a period of Shiva, those in mourning weren't really supposed to leave the house. Moreover, in a culture of hospitality, it was actually quite impolite, impolite for the guests, for the uh, owners of a home to leave the guests unattended. So even in the case that both Martha and Mary heard that Jesus was on his way, only really one of them could have gone out, and one of them needed to stay with the guests. In any case, Martha, she heard that Jesus was headed to their house, and she runs out to meet him. And we get to see Martha's response. And Martha's response was a response both lacking faith and a response of faith. A response lacking faith and a response of faith. Let's look at those in turn. So Martha's initial words to Jesus speak to her lack of faith. She says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And as I noted earlier, I don't believe that she was confronting Jesus for waiting two days before coming to Bethany. I actually believe that Martha's issue here was with Jesus's choice of actions. She had an issue with Jesus's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, we only get three scenes of Jesus with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary here in John 11 while they're grieving, in Luke chapter 10 in the scene with Martha and Mary, and then a subsequent scene in John chapter 12 where they were having dinner together after the resurrection of Lazarus. And when you look at these three scenes, what you get is that Jesus spent a lot of time with his friends, right? That whenever he was in and around Jerusalem, he would stop by and hang out with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Given the proximity of Bethany to Jerusalem, it was likely that whenever Jesus went to Jerusalem, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would be part of the crowds that would come and hear him teach. And that means Martha, Martha saw Jesus work a lot of miracles. Martha personally witnessed Jesus healing many, many people. They saw Jesus be there for people who were in desperate situations. But because Martha saw what Jesus was capable of doing, because she'd seen him use his power, when her brother Lazarus got sick, it raised a ton of questions. Where was Jesus when they needed him? Where was Jesus when they were in a desperate situation? If Jesus is the great healer, then why wasn't he around to heal their brother? If you'd been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. If you'd been here. Why hadn't Jesus chosen to be around Lazarus when he was sick, but had been around when all these other people were sick? Martha's grief made her question Jesus, made her question where he chose to be, who he chose to heal, 
what he chose to do. Her grief made her question Jesus' sovereignty. Sovereignty is a word used by Christians all the time, so let me define that. According to Bible Dictionary, sovereignty is defined as God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. That means sovereignty means that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants, because he's in complete control of all things. Christian rapper Shai Lin put it this way, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And on a conceptual level, that makes perfect sense to us, right? On a conceptual level. Of course, God's all-powerful. God's all-knowing. Of course he can do whatever he wants. Makes sense up here. But God's sovereignty often doesn't make sense when it goes against how we wish our lives would go. It doesn't make sense on an emotional level. It doesn't make a sense here. God's sovereignty doesn't make sense when a parent loses a child. God's sovereignty doesn't make sense when your spouse is unfaithful. God's sovereignty doesn't make sense when your relationships break down. God's sovereignty doesn't make sense when your brother dies. Suffering often inhibits our ability to trust in the sovereignty of God. Suffering often inhibits our ability to trust in the sovereignty of God. For Martha, who had seen Jesus heal countless people, to know that Jesus had the power to save Lazarus, but had chosen not to be there during her time of desperation. Martha didn't understand that choice. She questioned that choice and revealed a lack of faith in Jesus' sovereignty. And yet, and yet almost as if she understood that her response to Jesus lacked faith, Martha followed up that response with a statement of strong faith. Martha expressed disappointment in Jesus that he wasn't around to save Lazarus. And then, he says, and then she says to him, but even now, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Essentially, this statement affirmed her belief that Jesus had the power to do anything, that God would hear his prayer. Even in her grief, her faith in Jesus' power was unshaken. And then Martha gives one other faithful response. Jesus declared that he was the resurrection and the life, asked her if she truly believed that. And Martha delivered one of the clearest expressions of faith possible. Martha says, yes, Lord. Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She declared that she believed that he was the Messiah, the one chosen by God to redeem his people, that he was the very Son of God. That's faith. In delivering both a response lacking faith and also a response of faith, Martha models for us a very human and real response to God during our times of trial. Right? Martha first grieved the loss of her brother, and then she expressed that grief and pain to Jesus. And in the midst of that pain, she also affirmed her faith in who Jesus was. Yeah, a more mature faith with greater trust in God's sovereignty maybe doesn't question God. 
But I don't want anyone here today to walk out feeling condemned or judged just because you expressed your hurt and pain to God. That's what you're supposed to do. It's completely human and natural to do that. Allow yourself the grace to grieve and hurt and express that grief and pain to Jesus. And then in that, turn to him and acknowledge his goodness. After this moment with Jesus, Martha returned home to talk to Mary, told Mary that Jesus was coming. And then the Bible says this. And when she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Martha let Mary know that Jesus wanted to see her. And immediately Mary made a beeline for Jesus, just as Martha had done. She ran out so quickly that all the visitors in her house assumed she was, that grief had overcome her, and that she was going to the tomb to grieve even more. So they followed her. And then Mary ran up to Jesus. And like Martha, her response both lacked faith and showed faith. She had a response lacking faith and of faith. How so? Well, first, Mary expressed the exact same sentiment to Jesus that Martha expressed. Right, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word. Like Martha, Mary's hope had crumbled when Lazarus died. And so her response lacked faith just as Martha's did, questioning Jesus' choices, questioning why Jesus wasn't there to heal her brother. But unlike Martha, she didn't say anything else. So where was her response of faith? It's found in her physical response to Jesus. John went out of his way to record not just Mary's words, but also her actions. John noted this. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Here's why her falling at the feet of Jesus is such a declaration of faith. This Mary is mentioned two other times in the Gospels. First is in Luke chapter 10, where the Bible describes Mary thusly. And she, Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Sat at the Lord's feet. Then in chapter 12, after the resurrection of Lazarus, the Bible says this about Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Three times this Mary is mentioned in Scripture, and in all three instances, Mary is at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, anointing his feet with ointment, and in deep sorrow. 
always at his feet. No matter how Mary was feeling, whether she was enamored by his teaching, whether she was grateful that he resurrected her brother, or whether she was hurting, no matter how Mary felt, she always returned to the feet of Jesus. Being at someone's feet back then was a display of both respect and submission, respecting a person's authority and submitting to that authority. And no matter how Mary was feeling, even grieving, she always respected and submitted Jesus' authority. That's faith. Like Martha, Mary provides a model for us on how to work through our struggles and yet to do that in a framework of faith. Because the truth is this, how often during our times of struggle do we want to run away from God? But keep them at arm's length. How often when we're struggling do we stop reading our Bible because something bad happened? How often when we're struggling is it really difficult for us to pray because it felt like some other prayer seemingly went unanswered? How often have we stopped going to church for a season because of some frustration we had with what God was doing? You and I, our default mode is to run away from God when we're hurt or mad, or when we just don't get it. And yet Mary stayed at the feet of Jesus. Stayed at the feet of Jesus because she knew that bringing to God her hurt and anger was better than letting a wall build up between her and God. When we are struggling, God doesn't want there to be a wall. He doesn't want to be distant. He wants to be at our sides. He wants to be grieving alongside us and working us through those struggles. The Bible tells us the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God wants to be present in our pain, not absent. And so a response of faith from us is one that draws closer to God in suffering rather than running away. We need to be at the feet of Jesus and not at arm's length. We've seen Martha's response, we've seen Mary's, and now we get to see Jesus' response to the death of Lazarus. And what we see are two responses from Jesus as well, a response of empathy and a response of hope, a response of empathy and a response of hope. Jesus, he's approaching Bethany when Martha intercepted him. And Jesus, he loved Martha. And, he, and in his love for Martha, he has to bear the brunt of her hurt and pain because he wasn't there to prevent Lazarus' death. And after his conversation with her, he's there for just a few moments before he sees Mary and a crowd of mourners also come up to him. And Jesus, he loved Mary and also has to bear the brunt of her grief. And as if seeing two loved ones struggle and grieve wasn't enough, they brought Lazarus, Jesus to Lazarus' tomb. And we get one of the most famous verses in the Bible and the answer to a trivia question. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The very Son of God cried. Powerful statement. There are several reasons why Jesus wept. And I don't have the time to go into all of the reasons today since it would take a whole sermon to do so. And the reason I know it would take a whole sermon 
was because the first sermon I preached at Lake City 15 years ago was a whole sermon just on the verse, Jesus wept. But let me point out one reason today on why Jesus wept. Jesus wept out of empathy. He wept out of empathy. Two verses prior to Jesus' weeping, verse 33 tells us, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus saw his friend crying, saw all of her friends and relatives also crying, and their collective weeping deeply moved something inside him. That phrase, deeply moved, is a single word in the Greek. It could also be translated as groaning. Jesus deeply groaned in his spirit. It speaks to the depth of the response from him. He was also greatly troubled. Greek word, the Greek word for trouble there is the Greek word terasso. It could also be translated as stirred up. It's the same exact word used in John chapter 5 in the story of the, of the lame man who waited by a pool of water to be stirred up before he could go down into the water and be healed. And I love this imagery of Jesus' emotions being stirred up within him like water in a pool, or this swirl of emotion. And what set off this swirl of emotions inside Jesus was his empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of other people. Empathy occurs whenever we see another person's emotional response, and then we internally think to ourselves, I know why that person responded that way. And I, too, have felt that same emotion before. In the case of Jesus here, he sees Martha and Mary and their friends and visitors all weeping. And he knows why they're weeping. They're weeping out of grief. And he, too, has also felt grief. We usually only talk about the incarnation during the Christmas season, but the incarnation is always relevant. The incarnation is the doctrine that God, in all his infinite divinity, became one person, became a human being. It's the theological belief that God, that Jesus, was both fully man and fully God in one person. And Jesus being fully human means that during the time that he was on earth, he experienced everything that human beings experience, including grief. Jesus experienced the death of his earthly father, Joseph. He grieved. He experienced the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. He grieved. Jesus knew what it was like to hurt from loss. And here in the midst of two sisters grieving the loss of their brother, Jesus, he understood why they were grieving. He too had also felt grief. And let's not forget that Jesus loved Lazarus. He not only cried because of empathetic pain, no, he cried because he loved Lazarus and his friend was dead. Having a God with empathy, it means that we can trust him we trust that when we go to Jesus with our struggles, he actually truly understands what we're going through. And he cares for us in that struggle. But more important than empathy, more important than the empathy that he offered, what Jesus offered to Martha and Mary, what Jesus offers to us today, and what we have in Jesus is hope. Hope. 
real hope. We have hope in Jesus. You and I live in a world that seems to be losing hope with every passing year. The national suicide rate, a proxy measure in some ways for people who have lost hope, is at an all-time high over the last 30 years. Numerous surveys have shown increasing rates of depression and increasing rates of pessimism about the future. And these troubling statistics have only worsened during the pandemic. Our world is losing hope. And that's not a surprise given that the things that the world places its hope in, right, wealth, power, politics, and so on, all the things that the world places its hope in, utterly meaningless. No power to heal, no power to redeem, and no power to last. And this is why Jesus and why the church has such a great opportunity to speak light into this darkness and to provide hope in this darkness. Because in Jesus, we have real hope. Jesus' response to Martha when she confronted him with her pain reveals the hope that we have. Jesus said to her, your brother, he's going to rise again. And then he told her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. I'm going to unpack this powerful claim next week when we finish our series, but essentially, Jesus' response to Lazarus' death was twofold. Hope in eternity and hope in himself, hope in Jesus. Hope in eternity and hope in Jesus. Let's take a look at both of those in turn. Last week, I mentioned that this week I would address the seeming inconsistency of Jesus' statement in John 11:4, where Jesus told his disciples, this illness, it does not lead to death. On one hand, Lazarus, he clearly died, right? He was in a tomb for four days. On the other hand, Jesus always intended to bring Lazarus back to life. And yeah, he spent four days inside of a tomb, but the end of this story is Lazarus walking out of that tomb alive and well. Jesus was not using doublespeak when he told his disciples that this illness did not lead to death. No, Jesus' choice of words reflected the fact that Jesus' focus was never on the temporal, but always on the eternal. His focus was never on this world. It was always on the world to come. Jesus, when he saw Lazarus' death, he actually could see past Lazarus' death, and he saw a resurrection. He saw life. Jesus could dismiss the death because he could see the eternity. And part of the Christian hope is rooted in the eternity that we have in store for us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I, you and I will rise again like Lazarus. And so all the temporal concerns of this world, sickness, stress, anxiety, even death, none of that matters. We can have hope amidst these things because we can see the hope and light of eternity. Theologian, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. We see the light of eternity. Not only do we have hope in eternity though, but Jesus also points to himself as the basis for the hope that we have. We have hope in Jesus. 
Jesus declared that he was both resurrection and life. And it's not just the resurrection in the last day that Martha needed to look to. No, he need, she needed to look to Jesus, who was the resurrection. Dr. Constable put it this way. Jesus, he, wanted Martha to think about the person who would do the resurrecting rather than just the event itself. Jesus' own power raises people to life just as Jesus' own person satisfies people spiritually like bread satisfies physically. Without him, without Jesus, there is no resurrection or life. And this is why the Christian hope is so radically different from the false hopes of this world. Our hope, our hope is rooted not just in the eternal things to come. Our hope is rooted in the one who makes those eternal things happen. We see this concept throughout the Old Testament. In Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah wrote, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Because his steadfast love is never ending. Right? Our, we can place our hope in God because his steadfast love is never ending. The psalmist declares in Psalm 130, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. The psalmist notes that we could place our hope in God because of his forgiveness and the promises of his word. The famous words of Jeremiah 29, 9-11 say, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to provide you a future and a hope. Our hope lies in the plans of a sovereign, eternal God. Ultimately, the Christian hope is permanent and lasting and true because our hope is rooted in God who is permanent and lasting and true. Where Martha and Mary's responses offered models of us on how to respond during seasons of suffering. Oh, so much more does God's response here, does Jesus' response here offer us the model on how to respond during seasons of suffering. The Christian ought to respond by looking to eternity, by focusing on the things that are promised to us, by focusing on the life that we have because of Jesus, by focusing off of this temporal world and focusing on the world that is to come. And most importantly, the Christian ought to respond in times of suffering by focusing on the God who provides us all these things. The Bible says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And I shall not be shaken. Our hope is in Jesus. Remember Jane? Jane stepped out onto the stage of America's Got Talent earlier this year. And look at her smile. A smile that radiates joy and hope. Jane sings under the stage name Nightbird after having a dream about birds singing in the darkness of night. And Jane said this, It felt so poetic that these birds were singing as if it were morning and yet there was no sign of it yet. And that's what I want to embody. Despite telling the judges that cancer had spread to her liver, spine, and lungs, she assured the four judges that she was completely fine. 
And she stepped to the mic and sang an original song about her life called It's Okay. 30 years old, in some of the prime days of her years of her life, but divorced and facing a third battle with a disease giving her 2% odds, and she radiated joy in life that, in a way that was utterly beautiful. And she sang as if she truly believed it was okay. Throughout her performance, the judges, they stared at her with astonished looks on, her face, on their faces as if they could not comprehend how a woman dealing with the things that Jane was dealing with could possibly believe that everything was okay, could possibly radiate such joy and hope. Her performance captured not just the hearts of the four judges, but also the hearts of people all over the country. After the performance aired, her song, It's Okay, hit number one on iTunes. Because everybody, everyone is captivated by hope. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we know exactly how someone going through what she goes through, going through the deepest depths of suffering, can possibly have any joy or any hope. And it's only because of the eternal hope that we have in Jesus. They don't mention it on the show, but Jane is a Christian. And in her blog, she, she wrote, she writes about the eternity and the knowledge of the eternity that she has in store for her, no matter the number of days that she has left in this world. In an interview, she wrote this, even when I am in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end, I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. God's people are to be songbirds of the things that are coming. Church, this is what faith in Jesus looks like. An understanding that like Lazarus, we will rise again. That our Savior is the resurrection and that our Savior is the life. The Bible says God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for us. You and I, our hope is imperishable. It's unfading. And so no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what we're dealing with, sickness, financial stress, anxiety, depression, anything and everything, none of that matters. And all of it is redeemed in light of what we have in Jesus. Jesus told Martha, your brother will rise again. And church, he is telling us that again today, that we will rise again. That Sam, that you will rise again. That Steve, you will rise again. That Sally, you will rise again. That Karen, you will rise again. That Ron, you will rise again. That Grace, you will rise again. That we will rise again because we have resurrection. We have life. We have hope. Because we have Jesus, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great truth of eternity. We thank you for the real hope that we have only in you. We thank you that one day, Lord, one day, that we will be with you in eternity. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. Lord, thank you for your great promises and for who you are that you are the resurrection, and that you are the life. Lord, help us to be people that sing in anticipation of the good things that we know are coming. Help us to live in ways that we believe it. Lord, help us to live lives that demand an explanation, and that explanation is Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. In your name, we lift up all these things. Amen.